was the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. class that's morning spelled with a u because it is a pun thank you for listening to ghoul school a horror history podcast here on the unpops network my name is andy sell and i hope you're all having a decent midwinter holiday season i wish you a happy hanukkah christmas kwanzaa yule solstice etc if you celebrate something i hope your celebrations are safe and comforting And if you don't celebrate a thing, I just hope you're having a nice time anyway. You don't have to celebrate something to deserve a nice time of it. Speaking of this season, if you're in the giving spirit, you can go ahead and rate and review this very podcast wherever you're listening to it, and that would be super great. Quick note, I know that I said that the next episode was going to be a found footage episode. I am sorry. I have been a bad boy this year. Very naughty. And it didn't work out for this release, but it is coming next year, (laughs) right? Next, because it's so close. I'm that guy now. Hey, see you next year. Seriously, though, January or February, we're going to get another found footage episode out. In the meantime, though, I'm actually really excited to be doing this episode at this time of year because I think it's perfect timing to talk about slasher movies. That might seem weird to you. But it's not. I'll explain why. But also, I just, I love Christmas. I'm a big Christmas guy. And I think that sometimes people are surprised to learn that about me. I don't know if I put off very strong Christmas guy vibes, but there it is. I love Christmas. I love Christmas carols. I love Christmas movies, even non-horror ones. Prancer, for example, one of my favorites. I love certain Christmas events, tuba Christmas, especially if you've never been to that. It's real sweet. I like cookies. I like baking. I like hot chocolate. I like Christmas trees. I like the long, dark nights. And I love Christmas lights. They've always been magical to me. Big fan. Big old fan. And of course, Christmas horror. Big fan of Christmas horror. Specifically Christmas slasher movies. And I'm not religious, but I want to be respectful, so I'm not going to get too far into this, but despite Christmas being to the Christian faith the day of birth of Jesus, we don't know if that's the case, right? Like, this was a holiday celebrated by pagan people, by Germanic people, and then Christianity came in and said, well, we're going to kind of co-opt this holiday and 
and move it around and it's going to be our thing. And when Jesus was actually born is is up for debate, right? Like I've seen spring get said a lot. I've seen June 2nd. I've seen sometime in October. And there's just no certainty about it. But one thing that I personally am certain of is that the slasher subgenre of horror was born on Christmas, specifically around Christmas time 1974 in Canada with a movie called Black Christmas. And this is a subject of debate too. Sometimes people get pedantic. They don't consider it a slasher movie. For me, it checks enough of the boxes to qualify. And I think it's the first movie to check all of those boxes in that way. So I consider it, for me, the first slasher movie. So as far as I'm concerned, slashers began with a movie about a person going by the name Billy murdering people on Christmas Eve. And lo and behold, a decade later, the slasher subgenre arguably almost ended with a movie about a person going by the name Billy murdering people on Christmas Eve, and that is 1984's Silent Night, Deadly Night, Now, do you remember that audio you just heard at the opening of the show before the theme song? That is audio from the theatrical trailer for the movie Silent Night, Deadly Night from 1984. And that trailer sparked a whole lot of controversy when it aired on television sets across the country. Specifically, it caused a big stir in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where a woman named Kathleen Eberhardt, who is the mother of two, organized a protest campaign. She founded a group called Citizens Against Movie Madness, and with a bunch of other upset parents, they began calling the television stations to demand that the trailer get pulled. Now, by the time of the movie's release, which was November 9th, 1984, The trailers had already been pulled entirely. They tried moving the trailers to after 9 p.m., but that didn't satisfy people, and eventually the trailers just got pulled. And then when the film opened, members of this group protested and picketed the theaters that played it. The story became national news. Kathleen Eberhardt and Karen Knowles, of course, her name is Karen, were on Good Morning America talking about this movie. National Press, CBS Evening News, Entertainment Tonight picked up the story and ran with it. On November 6th, three days before the release of Silent Night, Deadly Night, the front page of the Milwaukee Journal carried a story about these protests. That is November 6th, 1984. That's election day. And this was a front page story. After about a week, TriStar pulled the film from the theater. Now, why all of this hubbub about this movie? It wasn't the first horror movie to take place during the holidays. It wasn't even the first horror movie to feature Santa Claus killing people. Christmas horror is a thing and has been even before movies. The history of Christmas itself is full of darkness (laughs) and weirdness. From mistletoe to caroling to leaving out cookies for Santa, nearly every Christmas or Yule-associated tradition has some kind of sharp edge or dark 
corner to its origin. Not to mention all of the explicitly malevolent mythical figures tied to the holiday season in various cultures. There's Krampus, there's the Wild Hunt, there are the Yule Lads, and we will get into all of that, likely in next year's episode around this time. But all this is to say, Christmas has been making snow angels with horror for a long, long time. In Victorian England, telling ghost stories at Christmas was the thing. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, perhaps the most famous Christmas story, is a ghost story. So every filmed adaptation of that story is, in my book, a horror movie. Val Luton's Curse of the Cat People features Christmas pretty prominently. But the big year, for our purposes, regarding the evolution of the slasher film and where that came from, and especially as it pertains to Christmas, is 1972, when we had four horror movies that took place on Christmas. Now, the first of these films that I'd like to talk about isn't a slasher, and arguably doesn't really qualify as a proto-slasher either, but it has some interesting elements in it relevant to our discussion, and that film is Whoever Slew Auntie Rue, a.k.a. Who Slew Auntie Rue, released in February of 72 in the UK and in March of 72 in the United States. It draws together two other important horror subjects that sometimes occupy the same space as slashers. Psycho Biddies and Killer Kids. Now, director Curtis Harrington was brought on to the project by star Shelley Winters after the success of their previous hagsploitation film, What's the Matter with Helen? Now, hagsploitation or Psycho Biddy movies have their origin in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and they're kind of a spiritual companion to Mad Young Man movies. And there are plenty of ideological and thematic discussions to be had about the nature of hagsploitation and what they say and what they're about. But in the case of this film, we have Shelley Winters as Rose Forrest, a.k.a. Auntie Rue. She is a rich widow who likes to invite a select group of children from the local orphanage, all the good boys and girls, to come stay at her house Christmas Eve. They get to have a feast, and she gives them all gifts, and then they go back to the orphanage. And it's just a nice little thing she does because it turns out, in addition to being a widow, she lost a child and is grieving that loss. Grieving so much, in fact, that she has a psychic who she pays lots of money to to hold seances for her so that she can communicate with the spirit of her lost child, Catherine. Enter... Christopher and Katie, the two bad kids at the orphanage, who are told they can't go to Auntie Rue's for Christmas. But they stow away in the car and they end up there and Rue falls in love with Katie. In fact, even mistaking her for Catherine a few times. But she's just enamored with her. She wants Katie to be her new daughter and she loses it. There are twists and turns and betrayals and reveals and blackmailing. There's a nefarious, malevolent butler character named Albie who is definitely a psychopath. He threatens the children more than once, in one sequence even donning a mask to chase them like we would see in slasher movies to come. But it's more 
immediate and urgent here because these are children. They're kids. It's a Hansel and Gretel story. In fact, Hansel and Gretel, the story, factors heavily into this film because Christopher starts to see parallels between the situation that he and his sister are in with this woman who is very unstable and the story of Hansel and Gretel. And it's almost like a comment on a child's inability to separate fantasy from reality. And it starts to become a question as to whether or not Christopher is a problem here. In fact, he seems like a psychopath in several moments, and it's not clear who is more dangerous, Christopher or Rue. It's it's very messy, and it's very interesting in that way. And in fact, Christmas horror in general, I've found, is very different then, you know, I don't want to say regular horror, because what is that, you know? <laughs> you know, to some degree, every title should be taken on its own merits. But since context is the name of the game here, I do feel like it's, it's worth mentioning that nearly across the board, Christmas set horror films tend to be very different from non-holiday horror, slasher or otherwise, even the Christmas slashers that we'll talk about can't seem to be content contained to their conventions and they bust out of the mold in some pretty wild ways here and there i mean there are exceptions obviously to that but i i think this might be because the holiday setting and backdrop and idea brings so much with it thematically and it just has so much of its own lore you don't really need to put too many horror ingredients in it you already have a ton to work with and that is definitely the case in the next holiday horror film that we will talk about from 1972, which was released in mid-November, Silent Night, Bloody Night. See, Silent Night, Deadly Night wasn't even the first Christmas set horror movie to play with the Silent Night, Holy Night words. In 1970, Jeffrey Convitz and Ira Teller, and this is going to be a running theme throughout a few more of these as well, but these two friends, Jeffrey Convitz and Ira Teller, finished a script that they had been working on for a few months about a town run by inmates who had escaped from an asylum. Convitz wanted to produce, and he just happened to know Mary Warrenov and Theodore Gershuni from college. They were college friends of his. Now, Mary Warrenov was one of Andy Warhol's superstars from the factory scene in New York. So when Convitz brought her on, and Gershuni to direct, they brought a bunch of friends from the Warhol scene, including Flaming Creatures filmmaker Jack Smith and trans icon Candy Darling. Filmed in Oyster Bay on Long Island in late November of 1970 at the James W. Beekman House, which is a gothic revival mansion built in the 1800s on 35 acres of land, Silent Night, Bloody Night was shot in the bitter cold, and everyone in the small crew wore multiple hats, including an early 20s Lloyd Kaufman, co-founder of the notorious Troma. He earned himself an associate producer credit doing mostly PA work and driving cast and crew transportation. It was his first real filmmaking experience, which he credits with the trajectory of his career and legacy. Mary Warrenoff isn't as kind about this film when she talks about it. She doesn't think it worked. Now, it, it 
in a lot of ways marked the beginning of her cult film acting career that would continue on working with Corman in things like Rock and Roll High School, but also the Eating Raoul with Paul Bartel and countless other titles. I mean, I'm sure we could count them if we wanted to, but I'm not counting right now. But I don't know if it's fair to dismiss this film. Silent Night, Bloody Night has a certain kind of vibe to it. It's a Carnival of Souls or Night of the Living Dead or Spider Baby kind of vibe. It's amateur auteurs working totally outside the industry system in a region mostly ignored by that system to tell a specific kind of story with a poetry and a style. It's drive-in fans making art house fair, almost. Silent Night, Bloody Night is not quite as good as Carnival of Souls or Night of the Living Dead or Spider Baby, even. It doesn't quite gel as much. The narrative is harder to understand, and it's got more baggage in its story and its plotting. It's not as socially relevant as Night of the Living Dead or as artful as Carnival of Souls or as wild-eyed as Spider Baby, and it for sure drags in places and jars in others, but it has some genuine surprises and wonders. It has these moments of meditation and sparks of ghoulish glee. I mean, there's a a dolly shot moving through a house while a, a, a figure burns through a window, and it it's like Hungarian or Russian almost. It's The film is ahead of its time in some ways while completely out of touch in others. It's looking to the future while clinging to this past and just hallucinating the entire time. It's, it's visionary and nostalgic, but it rides the line kind of jaggedly. The story of it is it's a very convoluted old dark house kind of story with a patriarch figure and an inherited estate. It's got some interesting twists and turns. But it's probably most notable in Christmas slasher discussions for doing some big slasher things at least two years earlier than Black Christmas. Now, one of those things is what we call the killer POV. It's a point of view, subjective camera, diegetically from the perspective of the antagonist. This is by no means the first film to do this, or even the first horror film or proto-slasher to do it, but it's there, and it's there in the same way as it is in Black Christmas and Halloween. The other thing is we get a protagonist receiving menacing phone calls from the killer disguising their voice. It's also not the first film to do that, by the way, but it's doing it in a Christmas horror movie two years before Black Christmas. There's also a cool thing in Black Christmas, if you've seen it, the scene where Peter is smashing the piano with a mic stand. There's a scene in this film of our troubled male character vandalizing a car. So like vandalism during uh, Christmas horror movies is a thing. And I just, I don't know, I love that. Silent Night, Bloody Night was distributed by Canon Films. Yes, that Canon Films in November of 1972, and it had a little bit of a drive-in run throughout the following year, but like Night of the Living Dead, a failure to register the copyright caused it to slide into public domain, and then it fell into obscurity for several years. It was more or less forgotten, until Elvira gave it a second life in the second episode of her show, Movie Macabre, in 1981, and that kind of kicked it off. Like, horror hosts in the 80s started showing this film after that. And I imagine that in 1984, it probably got a lot of play 
because of the Silent Night, Deadly Night controversy. The titles are so similar. You know, hey, here's a title that people are talking about. Well, we have a title that kind of sounds like that title. Don't you want to check it out? Anyway, Silent Night, Bloody Night, it's on Tubi. I like it a lot. It's not perfect, but it's very interesting. And there's some, like, a counterculture and even, like, a queer undercurrent to it that feels kind of vital and special. On Tuesday, November 28th, 1972, ABC aired the made-for-TV movie Home for the Holidays. It was a movie of the week. It was produced by Aaron Spelling, and it was written by psycho screenwriter Joseph Stefano. Home for the Holidays is like an Agatha Christie-style mystery thriller with a splash at Tennessee Williams. It's an old dark house-ish premise featuring a dying patriarch, town gossip, and a murder plot, and a bunch of family members that do not seem to like each other. And then the body count begins. Walter Brennan plays Ben Morgan, who summons his three estranged daughters home for the holidays, for Christmas, to join him and his eldest daughter, who never left home, and his wife, his second wife, who is suspected in town of murdering her husband and who Walter was having an affair with when his first wife, his daughter's mother, committed suicide. A lot going on here. Once all the daughters are together under the same roof and have sufficiently bickered with each other and revealed their various issues, Ben informs them that he believes his second wife is poisoning him to death. Now, this wife, Elizabeth, is played by Julie Harris from The Haunting, and she's terrific. There's a lot going on in this movie. Proto-slasher-wise, we do have a mysterious killer who has a unique look with this yellow rain slicker and is using a signature weapon a lot of the times, a pitchfork. It was shot in California on a low budget so they didn't do snow. It was a rainstorm for Christmas, which is appropriate. And the dialogue is incredible here. But the cast, the cast is the highlight. In addition to Walter Brennan and Julie Harris, we have Jill Haworth, or Hayworth. She consented to both pronunciations of her name. But she's playing Joe, the promiscuous, can't-count-how-many-husbands-she's-had daughter. And interestingly enough, that same year, 1972, she played another character whose last name was Morgan in another proto-slasher called Tower of Evil. We'll definitely be talking about that movie later in this semester. We have Eleanor Parker as eldest daughter Alex, the self-righteous, I stayed behind and looked after the family while you all left me alone, daughter. There's Jessica Walter as Freddie, the daughter who struggles with addictions to alcohol and pills and really just can't seem to find any kind of processing of her mother's death. And then youngest daughter, Chris, played by Sally fucking Field who is more or less our proto-final girl here. It's interesting, all of these women have final girl traits clashing with other typical slasher friend character traits. Very complex. Joe is the observant, vigilant one who feels like something is off the entire time and is suspicious about what's going on. Alex and Chris are both resourceful. 
Chris being the shy one, Alex being the the Girl Scout figure, and Freddie is a little oversensitive and racked by grief, as you often will see in a final girl as well. Also, their names. You have Alexandra, Frederica, Christine, and Joanne, but they all go by the masculine-leaning, shortened, nicknamed versions of those names. Freddie, Chris, Joe, Alex. Another final girl thing. Add to that the remote location, a signature weapon, but also varied methods of killing, and a decent chase scene through the woods, and we're basically in slasher country almost. And gosh, again, the dialogue is just so good. As of the time of this recording, it's on YouTube, it has been there for a while, it is well worth your time. And it's also just an excellent example of how the TV movies and made-for-TV horror, specifically of the 1970s, wasn't afraid to do some different interesting things, and in some ways was often ahead of the game when it came to horror storytelling. So that's three of the Christmas horror movies of 1972. Now the fourth one that I want to talk about is actually the first one, because it was it was released before the other three, but to, to really talk about it, we have to jump back again. So those three films all released a good 12 years before Silent Night, Deadly Night, demonstrate that holiday horror wasn't new. Christmas horror wasn't new. Acting like Christmas and horror don't belong together really kind of demonstrates a lack of awareness, <laughs> historically speaking. Now, a lot of the, the talk about what people were upset about regarding Silent Night, Deadly Night was the tainting of the image of Santa Claus specifically. This is a movie where a Santa Claus is killing people, and that's what people were objecting to. Here's the thing, though. It wasn't even the first time for that. And look, the figure of Santa Claus in general is just, there's a lot to it. The figure that we call Santa Claus has a complex history, duh. Essentially, he's an often mutated amalgam of one real-life person who existed and then two arguably mythical entities, one of them itself an amalgam. So really, it's, it's just the one guy and then a bunch of fantasy stuff. Now, the real person who actually lived was St. Nicholas, or Nicholas of Bari, who was a Greek Christian bishop in 4th century Myra, in what is now Turkey along the Aegean coast. He was also known as the Wonder Worker, and there are a lot of stories about this guy, including one where he allegedly chopped down a demonically possessed tree, and then another one where he brought three dead kids back to life after they had been murdered and pickled by a butcher looking to pass them off as pork during a famine. Good Christian story, that one. So even St. Nicholas, the real guy in 300-something, was involved in horror stories. <laughs> but the big thing he was known for as far as his place in the Santa thing goes, is gift-giving, and specifically a story about paying a dowry by leaving a bag of money 
to rescue some women from sex trafficking, more or less. So dark shit there. And then we have, you know, Sinterklaas and Father Christmas and these mythical beings that have you know, been inspired by various different things in throughout Europe and, and pagan and Germanic traditions and folklore. But also Charles Dickens, Ghost of Christmas Present, became a, a big imprint for how we think of Santa Claus. We had Washington Irving talking about Santa Claus, you know, the creator of the Headless Horseman popularizing Santa as a fictional character. Uh, there was A Visit from St. Nicholas, the big poem that we... It was the night before Christmas, that one. In the 20th century, his image got softened even more through L. Frank Baum and various soft drink companies and the Salvation Army and Santas in department stores becoming a thing. In 1938, though, there was this radio show broadcast uh, by Norman Corwin called The Plot to Overthrow Christmas, where the devil sends the damned Roman Emperor Nero to the North Pole to assassinate Santa Claus. I have not heard this, but I need to. <laughs> and this brings us to Ogden Nash. Ogden Nash was a famous poet back when poets were allowed to be famous. He specialized in light verse and in his life published over 500 pieces. He was the lyricist for two successful Broadway musicals and even had a Broadway musical written and produced about him after he passed away in 1971. He was featured in Life magazine in 1968. He was a regular celebrity panelist on the television game show Masquerade Party, which was more or less like the masked singer, but without singing. And he was even on a postage stamp. New York Times once declared him the country's best-known producer of humorous poetry. He's also the guy who first said, candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. That's who we're talking about here. And in 1942, Nash published a poem called The Boy Who Laughed at Santa Claus. The Boy Who Laughed at Santa Claus is a narrative poem, and it tells the story of Jabez Dawes, a boy who lives in Baltimore, and he's a bit of a bad boy. He's a naughty, naughty kid. He hides old ladies' reading glasses. He puts his elbows on the table. He steals milk from kittens. He scares babies. He chews with his mouth open. And he brushes his teeth incorrectly. I think some of these crimes are more serious than others. And his justification for his transgressions is that there is no Santa Claus. So there is no consequence either way. And in the story of the poem, that's the thing that upsets people more. It's not necessarily the stuff he does. It's him saying, well, who cares? I'll do what I want because there's no consequences. And people don't know how to deal with him. It's a whole thing. In fact, his parents kill themselves because of his behavior. Like, that's, they just check out. That's, that's how naughty he is. He tells other kids that there's no Santa Claus. It ruins Christmas. And... He's doing all this alone, like, there's no community action to try to stop him, which is kind of weird. But Santa, of course, comes in, because he, you called down the thunder, Mr. Dawes, is afraid of him, and is like, no, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. I don't know what you heard. But Santa's not having any of that, and he punishes Chavez by turning him into a jack-in-the-box. 1942, this is long before the episode of The Twilight Zone, It's a Good Life, where... 
that is kind of reversed. A naughty kid with psychic powers turns uh, a man into a jack-in-the-box. But this is what this is what happens to Chavez. Santa uses his magic to turn him into a jack-in-the-box, and Blitzen and Donna the reindeers lick the paint off of him, which is odd detail. And now with with him gone, everyone returns to their regular Christmas celebration, and and justice is served, and order is restored, and everybody's fine. And it's not a horror story, but it is Santa Claus as a a voyeuristic, home invading, moral enforcer in this comedic poem with a kind of a dark streak to it. But it would be 12 years later that that dark streak would produce one of the earliest mainstream media depictions of a horrifying Santa Claus. In the pages of Vault of Horror, issue number 35, the February-March issue of 1954, in a story called And All Through the House. Published by EC Comics, And All Through the House tells the story of a woman who has just murdered her husband on Christmas Eve, when over the radio comes an announcement, Old Dark House style, The Bat style, that a dangerous inmate has escaped from a nearby hospital. Written and illustrated by Johnny Craig, and it was actually, from what I understand, the first issue where he was also an editor. And All Through the House is a very different kind of story. It's not the artwork and the tone of the story. It seems more restrained than you would normally get in this kind of a comic. And the panels are mostly her reactions and expressions. Like, the, the wife, the murderess, <laughs> is in every panel. I mean, the Santa killer isn't even shown until the final panel. Like, he's just not present. It's all about her and, and her fears and, and how she should set things up and, and what she should do and dealing with her daughter. And, oh my God, I can't call the police about this escaped lunatic when I'm pretty sure he's at the door because I've murdered my husband. And there is reference made to her wanting the insurance money, but you also kind of get the idea that she's not maybe cold-blooded about it. You know, that maybe she was pushed to action somehow. We don't get a picture of what kind of guy her husband was. We just know that she felt trapped with him. And she's kind of a proto-final girl in a lot of ways. She's, she seems resourceful. She, even as she's freaking out, she's trying to think about what she can do. And the killer, too. When they announce his escape over the radio, they make a point to mention explicitly that he targets women. That is made very clear. He does not harm children, and he only harms men if provoked. He, it's gender-based violence for this guy. So, and that's a thing that definitely comes up in the slasher conversation. But yeah, also there is this, this idea behind it of, yeah, okay, it's not the real Santa Claus. It's a guy who found a Santa Claus costume and put it on. But I mean, the, the whole theme here is that she has committed a sin. She has committed a transgression, which was the way with Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror and The Haunt of Fear. Those comics were all about justice and a moral code and the guilty being punished but you set it on christmas and you include 
Santa Claus in any form, and that just becomes that much more prevalent. And while the citizens of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as far as I know, didn't call the offices of EC Comics and pick it explicitly over the and all through the house story in issue 35 of Vault of Horror, uh, there was something of a moral panic directed at EC Comics in general. Roughly six months after the publication of this issue, EC Comics would publish their final issue of Vault of Horror and shutter the title completely. You see, in the early 1950s, there was this general concern about how valuable the media of comic books was, how it was affecting children. It's the early 50s, so it's tied to anti-communism, homophobia, racism, Christian nationalism. And it's the same moral panic that wanted leftists out of Hollywood and LGBTQ people locked in the closet and the music of people of color off the radio. Parents' groups burned comic books. Church leaders, including Reverend Thomas Fitzgerald of Chicago, made political hay by linking crime comics to juvenile delinquency. And never mind that these stories almost always had this crime-doesn't-pay message. When a mob finds a boogeyman, they bring out the pitchforks and torches. And the New York legislature got involved, the ACLU got involved, and we have a man named Frederick Wortham, who was a psychologist. He wrote two articles in 1948, uh, Horror in the Nursery and the Psychopathology of Comic Books. Both were published in the American Journal of Psychotherapy. And comic book companies, including EC Comics, William Gaines, formed the Association of Comic Magazine Publishers in response. Gaines left that group in 1950 over a disagreement with its leadership. And then in 1954, Frederick Wortham published a book called Seduction of the Innocent, The Influence of Comic Books on Today's Youth. A Democratic senator from Tennessee saw this as an opportunity to make headlines for his war on organized crime, and things snowballed. There was a congressional hearing a Senate subcommittee on juvenile delinquency in April of 1954, the month after the publication of, of issue 35. And Frederick Wortham, in this hearing, claimed that the comic book industry was more dangerous to children than Hitler. The hearing was broadcast on television, the New York Times dedicated a front-page story to it, and the panic was going strong. By the summer of that year, 15 comic book publishers had folded. During that summer, an event known as the Brooklyn Thrill Killings occurred in which four teenage boys between the ages of 15 and 18, who were inspired, by the way, by Police Commissioner Francis Adams's crackdown on quote-unquote undesirables in Manhattan. This crackdown caused targeted communities, namely gay men, unhoused people, people experiencing homelessness, and alcoholics to seek refuge in Brooklyn. Brooklyn was where these kids lived, and they took it upon themselves to be vigilantes about it. They assaulted girls and attacked what they called vagrants. The leader of the group, Jack Coslow, thought of himself as a crime fighter, helping the police to restore law and order. 
They beat to death an alcoholic man experiencing homelessness named Reinhold Ulrichsen and a 34-year-old black factory worker named Willard Mentor, who they found sleeping on a bench. They beat him and they drowned him in the East River. During the trial, Frederick Wortham was the court-appointed psychiatric expert, and he manipulated and misled to tie the murders to comic books, specifically a comic called Knights of Horror, which was banned in New York as a result. But this, this is a flashpoint here, and the panic about comics and how they're warping young minds is burning real high at this point. So... The Comics Magazines Association of America formed as a way to self-regulate the industry. And it was William Gaines's idea. They appointed a man named John Goldwater president, and they vowed to not publish any more comics with the words horror, terror, or weird in the title. EC Comics ended their horror line that September, and the Comics Code Authority was established. A New York City judge named Charles F. Murphy was the code administrator. Within two months, he oversaw 440 comics, rejected 126 outright, and revised 5,656 individual drawings. Censorship was in full swing. But just in case there's any confusion or doubt about what kind of an agenda Charles Murphy had, consider this story. Incredible Science Fiction number 33, which was the last comic book EC ever published, February 1956. They had a story called Eye for an Eye that was rejected, possibly because injury to eye was a recurring theme singled out by Wortham in his book Seduction of the Innocent. To replace an eye for an eye, the story Judgment Day was submitted. Judgment Day had run before. This was a reprint. In the end of the story, it is revealed that the main character, an astronaut, is a black man. Murphy objected to this solely on the grounds that a central character was black. Gaines got him to back off by threatening to sue, and they ran the story uncensored. But it was the last comic they ever published. And I think that that tells you exactly what kind of person Charles Murphy is, and what kind of people would want a position like that in the first place. But despite all that outrage about comic books, despite EC folding, the legacy lived on, and in 1972, a Tales from the Crypt movie was made by Amicus, and it was released in February of 1972. So it was actually the first Christmas horror movie of that big year for Christmas horror movies. Now, it's an anthology horror film with four different stories and a wraparound story, and the first segment is an adaptation of And All Through the House. The film was written by Milton Sabatsky and directed by Freddie Francis, and that segment stars Joan Collins as Joanne, the wife who murders her husband with a fireplace poker on Christmas Eve. Unlike in the comic, however, there is no doubt about Joanne's motivation or character here. The segment opens with Richard, her soon-to-be-deceased husband, leaving a gift for her under the tree with a card calling her the best wife in the world and signing it with a big kiss. There's no wiggle room there. He's sympathetic and doting, and therefore she is a cold-blooded murderer. To really drive that further home, Richard is festive about Christmas. He's wearing a party hat, 
and playing carols on the radio. And he's just in the spirit. He's in a, in a joyous mood. And after Joanne kills him, and there's a great bit of violence there with like Kensington Gore splashing on a newspaper. But after that, she says, Merry Christmas, almost sarcastically, and immediately takes her own party hat off. She is a Grinch. From then on, the story is pretty much the comic, including the radio bulletin announcing a man described as a homicidal maniac has escaped from a hospital for the criminally insane. The biggest difference between this adaptation and its source is that we see the Santa killer very early on in this one, and he's constantly peering in through the windows and the, the segment keeps reminding us that he's a threat and that he's out there and that he could get in at any moment. And Joanne's proto-final girl traits are definitely not born of survival instinct here. Uh, she is clever and inventive because she's trying to get away with murder. The resourcefulness we see in her is expressed through her altering a crime scene and destroying evidence. So the moral of the story is, is a little bit more of a, of a clear comeuppance in this one. And the, the Santa is, is scary, and the camera work is terrific. Tales from the Crypt is a great anthology horror movie all around, but the And All Through the House segment is a home invasion story told on Christmas Eve. Over 15 years later, Fred Decker and Robert Zemeckis would take these slasher-adjacent and noir elements even further with their adaptation for the Tales from the Crypt cable series on HBO, but that's another story. Another thing I want to mention about the 1972 Tales from the Crypt movie is the segment Poetic Justice, which features Peter Cushing as a man terrorized into an early grave by a meddling rich busybody. Of course, he gets revenge from beyond the grave, but there are themes relevant to our greater discussion here. Cushing's character named Grimsdyke is an older, working poor man, and he's, it's Peter Cushing, so he's very thin. He's like gaunt, almost like the old St. Nicholas figure. And like St. Nicholas, he has a reputation as a gift giver. He gives toys that he makes and repairs to the neighborhood children, and the children all love him. And this is what pisses off his neighbor. He's a privileged young neighbor whose agenda is explicitly classist. He's constantly talking about Grimsdyke's filthy house and, and poor hygiene. And it's almost like he's an eyesore. He's got to go. It's a gentrification story. But he knows to get rid of him, he has to incite a moral panic. And he does. He insinuates to all the concerned parents of these children that he is a threat to them. So in the name of protecting the children, these parents keep their kids away from him and he loses his job. And there's even a hate mail campaign. And there's a bit of violence on a holiday, but this time it's Valentine's Day. So things at work, even in the non-Christmas story, that inform what we're talking about. So anyway, here we have this killer Santa. No protests. No front-page news about protests. Nobody saying Freddie Francis and Milton Sabatsky should be run out of town. I mean, there may have been people that were upset about Tales from the Crypt, but it's not a talking point 50 years later. Anyway, that's 1972, and we see in these films a lot of the holiday horror to come, and 
a good amount of the foundation for the slasher genre on its way, which will arrive in 1974 with Black Christmas. Bob Clark was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and was working as a filmmaker in Florida when Canadian distribution company Quadrant Releasing picked up his horror feature debut, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. It was a cult success, and it convinced them to offer Bob Clark financing for another horror film. That movie was Death Dream, which is an incredible anti-war zombie story, loosely based on the tale of the monkey's paw, which also had an adaptation in the Tales from the Crypt movie, interestingly enough. Death Dream was filmed in Florida, but the financing deal with Quadrant required him to handle all the post-production duties in Canada. So he moved his operation to Toronto once production had wrapped. And he fell in love with it and immediately made plans to move there and he stayed there for over a decade. Because of his deal with Quadrant and then the arrangements he'd made for post-production, when his filmmaking partner and friend Alan Ormsby met financier Thomas Carr, who was obsessed with the story of Ed Gein, Clark served as a sort of unofficial executive producer and made arrangements for them to come up and film Deranged in Canada so they could piggyback the post-production for that film onto Death Dream's editing process. Deranged is significant for a lot of reasons. I mean, here it is, Ed Gein, Wisconsin. Hey, that ties in. But he was also the figure that inspired Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, two other incredibly influential proto-slasher movies. And I guess I should probably call them pre-slasher. They have proto-slasher elements, but they really stand on their own. I'm going to (laughs) stop. We will talk about Deranged some other time. But right now, you should know Tom Savini did effects. It was one of his earliest jobs doing uh, movie effects. And Roberts Blossom plays the character of Ezra Cobb, the stand-in for Ed Gein. That's Robert's Blossom, the old man from Home Alone, the, the South Bend shovel slayer. Anyway, the, the origin origins of Black Christmas, like Silent Night, Bloody Night, can be traced back to two friends working in the late 60s. Roy Moore and Timothy Bond were making short films for the CBC, and they wanted to break into features, so they wrote this horror movie script called The Babysitter based on the popular urban legend about a babysitter receiving threatening phone calls that turn out to be coming from inside the house. You know the story. It's been done a thousand times, but at this time, it hadn't been done. So they wrote this script about it. It sat dormant for a while because the Canadian film industry was slow going at the time, and it was trouble finding resources and money for a project like that. So they printed 250 copies of the script and sent them everywhere they could think of, including the production company Vision 4, run by Harvey Sherman, Dick Schutten, and Bob Clark. Schutten and Sherman optioned the script and had more rewrite it so that it would be about sorority girls instead of children. He did. He changed the title to Stop Me, and Bob Clark read it and came on as director. And this is where we get just a Christmas miracle. Just every piece of this puzzle fits so perfectly to create just an incredibly special film. The the casting, Olivia Hussey, Margot Kidder, John Saxon, Andrea Martin, Keir DeLay, and not to mention any of the other supporting cast, Art Hindle, they're all so great. The script is great. 
the story and world that Roy Moore set up, but then the the character that Bob Clark brought to it with his rewrites, making these college-aged women characters feel real and engaging and, and contemporary and modern, like just how real they feel. They're they're vulgar, right? And they're and they're profane and they're honest, but the film is never vulgar about them. Even when these awful calls are coming in. And that's another decision to have that phone call at the very beginning of the film to just come in with that tone. Reg Morris's cinematography as well. Like he and Burt Dunk designed a shoulder rig apparatus that camera operator Burt Dunk would wear while he was climbing on the trellis in that in that opening scene that for that killer POV and he could adjust it and pan and tilt using his head. And it's so unsettling and, and it kind of makes that killer POV stuff feel more frightening and more disturbing than the smooth panaglide you get in Halloween or the steady cams that you would see in slasher killer POVs later. I mean, even when we're not getting killer POVs through the camera work, it's it often feels subjective regardless. Like even just regular shots that are moving in that space, apart from the killer's perspective, feel dreamlike and, and odd and voyeuristic on their own. And let's talk about the space that the camera is in for a moment. That, that location is incredible. And the production design and art direction to make it feel so rich and lived in and honestly, a little unknowable, like it, that space feels cozy, but also kind of expansive and cavernous and threatening in places. And it just all feels so cold as well. And, and Carl Zittra's score, wow, it's like experimental. He was influenced by John Cage doing that. He used forks and things and on the piano to get this score that is also used pretty sparsely, all things considered. Like, Black Christmas is a masterpiece, <laughs> in, in, by my estimation. It's one of the best horror films ever made. And slasher movies often kind of, you know, people will say stuff like Black, Black Christmas isn't really a slasher because it's too good, or Halloween isn't a slasher because it's too good to be a slasher, or they, they cite the fact that there isn't graphic violence in these films, that most of the violence is off-camera or implied. But I don't think you need gore for it to be a slasher. I don't think that quality determines whether or not a film is a slasher film. And if you want to bring up the whodunit argument, that's ridiculous. So many slashers aren't interested in solving a mystery. For me, this movie is a slasher because it has all of the important staples or has the sliders set in a place. Like, it has ineffective authority figures. It has a young and mostly female cast of characters and highlights their concerns and their aspirations and their, you know, experience. There's a, a killer who is unknown or unknowable, and in this case, faceless. And that includes voyeuristic subjective perspective shots. There's The setting is... You got three. You got a holiday setting on a campus and specifically a sorority. That is slasher AF. There's a twist ending and an inversion of some sort of narrative satisfaction, which is a slasher thing. There are themed killings and the killings are peculiar with an emphasis on improvisation and the killer's resourcefulness. 
using common but unusual or specific objects that are not necessarily weapons, but are reappropriated into and recontextualized into instruments of death. And it has a final girl, one of the best final girls, Jess Bradford, whose whole thing is, I'm not going to give up my life for this guy. I am going to choose my fate. Before she even knows about any slashing going on, that's her whole thing. And she's just terrific, and Olivia Hussey is terrific as her. And there's probably not much else I can say about this movie that hasn't been said a thousand other times. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. Four years before Halloween, taking all of the the holiday horror stuff of 1972 and, and earlier, and putting it together in some really inventive ways, but also it's so lean and tight, and parts of it are still genuinely frightening. It's just highest caliber filmmaking at work here. But for a long time, it didn't get the credit it was due. It was a success when it was released in Canada in October of 1974. And the ad campaign was really clever. It, there were ads in the newspaper of the days counting down with violent Christmas-themed cartoons, including one of them was Santa Claus getting shot point-blank in the head. It was a cartoon, though, so it wasn't you know, no protesting about it. But it was a success there. And then, based on that success, Warner Brothers picked it up to release it here. But they didn't like the title Black Christmas. Specifically, they objected to the word black in the title, thinking that people would assume it was a black exploitation film. So they retitled it Silent Night, Evil Night. So there's that again. And it didn't do so well. It kind of fizzled out. It did all right in Chicago and Los Angeles and I think New York. But when it expanded to 70 screens, it kind of just didn't do much business. For me, it's a Christmas staple. I watch it every year. <laughs> now, if you're one of those people that still doesn't consider Black Christmas a slasher, and you think of it as a proto-slasher, and I haven't convinced you and I can't convince you and how you maybe even think that Halloween doesn't count as a slasher. No, for you, the first slasher movie was Friday the 13th. Eh. Because in January of 1980, we had To All a Good Night. January 30th, 1980, directed by David Hess of Last House on the Left fame. The only feature he directed, actually. To All a Good Night is a slasher, and there's no denying that it's a slasher. It is pretty standard as far as slasher stuff goes. It's campus. It's a, an all-girls school where some of the students are not leaving the school for Christmas break. They're staying, and they have some boys flying in to party with over the Christmas break. They drink, they hook up, and bodies start piling up. It stars Jennifer Runyon as our final girl, Nancy, who you probably might best recognize as the girl that Peter Venkman is trying to hit on at the beginning of Ghostbusters. Now, this movie has it all. Oversexed young people, red herrings, some great kills, some good body reveals. A character named Leah totally loses her shit, a la Sally Hardesty at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's a very Friday the 13th kind of reveal here. There are some, 
not to give too much away, but both this film and Who Slew Auntie Rue actually have a little bit of like Pamela Voorhees prototype stuff going on in them. It has an axe to the face gag before Friday the 13th. And we get not one, but two killer Santas. In fact, we get somebody dressed in a suit of armor at one point kills somebody. It only happens the once. Uh, The rest of the time we get, it's Santa stuff. And it is very much a straight-ahead slasher movie. So even if you don't count Black Christmas or Halloween, slashers were born on Christmas with To All a Good Night. Well, technically about a month after Christmas when it was released. Now we skip ahead to November of that year, and we get another Killer Santa movie. However, this movie is not a slasher movie, really. Of course, I am talking about Christmas Evil. And not only is this not a slasher movie, there are people that would argue it's not a horror movie. I think of it as a horror movie, but it's more like the Mad Young Man movies. We're watching a descent into madness in our protagonist. But even in that tradition, it's not really like what we're used to there. It's honestly has more in common with Taxi Driver than some of those other movies like Peeping Tom or Don't Go in the House. It's an anti-hero vigilante situation going on, almost neo-noir, but make it Christmas. Now, this is another situation like Silent Night, Bloody Night and Black Christmas, where we have a writer who came up with the idea in the late 60s, uh, 1970-ish thereabouts. That writer is Lewis Jackson, who also directed the film. It was filmed in North New Jersey. And it's super well shot. The score is good. There are little experimental flourishes. But it's mostly pretty straightforward, with just little dips here and there into weirdness. And occasionally big dips into weirdness. And at the heart of this film is Brandon Maggart's performance. He is simultaneously off-putting and engaging. You like him, but you are very scared of him. Because what we have here is an adult with a fixation on Santa Claus, uh, a fetish to the point where he wants to be Santa Claus to the point where he even believes he is Santa Claus, and this causes him to engage in some really creepy behavior. He's spying on children and making lists in these two books marked good boys and girls and bad boys and girls. He's this self-appointed moral authority and enforcer, and it seems to stem from a traumatic event as a child where he witnessed his mom uh, with... This someone in a Santa Claus costume is in a sexual scenario, which I'm going to be honest, that happens in a lot of these movies. But this this might be where it began. I'm not sure. I to look up what was the first movie where a kid walked in on somebody hooking up with Santa Claus. But anyway, this character, our lead, Harry, it's almost like he's like a real world version of Will Ferrell and Elf. You know, without the the actual magic stuff. It's just like, wow, no, that's scary. And quite possibly the eeriest part of it is that for so long, Harry demonstrates an understanding that to some degree, this obsession has to be a secret life. It's not something he can expect society to accept. 
And as the film goes on, you're watching him prioritize that less and less till it gets to the point where there is no longer any kind of compartmentalization. In this scene where he, he fixes a beard to his face and he's tugging it to see if it comes off. And it's, gosh, this performance. It's, there's so much in it. It's so earnest and unpredictable. There are moments when you, when you really root for him. And then there are other moments where you really want to get away from him. You know, he's like a, a, a Christmas proud boy sometimes, ideologically. But other times is like, you know, almost Mr. Rogers-esque. It's hard to get a fix on him, and that makes him more disturbing. It just feels layered and authentic and lived in. Even when he's humming Christmas carols stuff and doing this, like, Santa siege prep work stuff, it just, it feels organic. And the camera's great, it's just so well-framed. There's a shot of a Christmas party in particular that kind of really highlights how kind of sad and lonely a Christmas party can be from a good distance in the corner. And there's a mob in it. There's a panicked crowd that understands that there is a killer Santa in their area and they need to fight back. Big Frankenstein vibes in that. But also just relevant on the topic of moral panic. And it has some slasher flourishes here and there. Some unique weapon stuff. An eye gouging with a bayonet of a toy soldier. A throat slashing with the star from the top of a Christmas tree. So it's got, it's got a little bit of that in its system. But then there's also a scene where we watch him trying to get down a chimney for several moments. And it's awkward neorealism that is like simultaneously funny and very upsetting and sad. And it's just, it, gets, it has this, this drama in it that feels still relevant. And that was in 1980. Nobody protested. A Killer Santa movie where you're supposed to sympathize with the Killer Santa to some degree. Because it just wasn't going to have that kind of profile anyway. In fact, the MPAA didn't approve the ads for the film, so its release in California was canceled. Now, at the time of its limited regional release, it received extremely negative reviews from mainstream critics. And it was dismissed largely by genre circles because it wasn't just an easy horror movie. And this is 1980, so this is right as the slasher boom is, is about to really break open wide. So it's not an easy film to categorize, and it's just challenging. Now we're working up to the big deal killer Santa, but between this film and that, in 1982... There's a slasher movie called The Dorm That Dripped Blood, a.k.a. Death Dorm, a.k.a. Pranks. It was directed by Stephen Carpenter and Jeffrey Obrow. Their best work is probably The Kindred, which is a really great gooey creature movie that I highly recommend. But Dorm That Dripped Blood, standard slasher fare, campus slasher, takes place on a school that's closing down. Over the Christmas break, a bunch of students decide to stay to help clean up the campus, which, as we saw in To All a Good Night, and then we will see in plenty of films later, is kind of the, we need a remote location, we need a cast of young people where they're alone in this remote location and help can't reach them. Boom. Christmas break at a college. There you go. And it's not bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. 
it is very much by the numbers slasher coming on the heels of the the great year of 1981 with little new to offer but it does take place during christmas it is a slasher but it doesn't do much with the holiday scenario it's not very Christmassy, you know? Black Christmas, sure, there's no killer Santa, there's no supernatural aspect, but it feels like Christmas. Dorm the Trip Blood, not so much. But on the subject of unstable, possible antagonists committing vandalism, this has a really great bit of vandalism where our killer trashes a big Christmas dinner that the kids prepared. Probably my favorite scene in the movie, to be honest. This brings us to 1984. Harvard undergrad Paul Kaimi writes a script called He Sees You When You're Sleeping as a Class Assignment. It's about, what else, a killer Santa. Producing partners Scott Schneed and Dennis Whitehead were looking for something to produce feature-wise to make a name for themselves. They optioned He Sees You When You're Sleeping to rework into a script called Sleigh Ride. They took it to TriStar. TriStar was a conglomerate of CBS, Columbia, Pictures, and HBO. They said, great, it's a slasher movie, low budget, potentially high profits, let's go. And they assigned it to producer Ira Barmack, who'd had a two-picture deal with them. From here, Michael Hickey comes on to rewrite and... Charles Sellier Jr. is hired to direct, and the film we get is Silent Night, Deadly Night. It's slated for a November 9th release, and the PNA machine gets to work. And this is where I think we get the problem. See, TriStar being a smaller conglomerate, but from pieces of these bigger studios, didn't seem to scrutinize the movie they were making too much because it didn't call for a lot of, you know, the big company's resources. It was filmed on location in Utah for around a million dollars. No big deal. It's pocket change to them. So they probably just heard, oh, teen slasher movie, and saw dollar signs. But they had a huge advertising apparatus at their disposal, So they were able to just really just pump out ads. All five stations were airing primetime commercials during big programs. And this is probably where the issue happened. See, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, at WITI-TV Channel 6, which was at the time a CBS affiliate, on Sunday, November 4th, 1984, there was a Sunday night football game. The Green Bay Packers versus the New Orleans Saints. And it's Wisconsin. Everyone in Milwaukee is going to be watching this. Families. So what do you think is going to happen when during a commercial break, you get an ad like the one you heard the audio from at the beginning of this episode, where a Christmas carol is playing. It's getting you in the mood for for Christmas. Oh, hey, there's Santa. That's friendly. Look at this little elf animatronic. Oh, what a nice, what nice Christmas thing is this? And then Santa Claus is pulling an axe off the wall and pulling a gun on you. Like, of course, some people are going to get a little bent out of shape. It's not the fault of the movie. It's the fault of TriStar not understanding what they had. 
Also, let's take a look at the political climate this film was released into for a moment, where these ads were playing. This is November of 1984. This is not only an election year, but election month. Silent Night, Deadly Night is released three days after the election, and by the way, that's an election that Ronald Reagan won by a landslide. 49 states, including Wisconsin, went to Reagan. It's only the second time that's happened, and it hasn't happened since. And what do you think that means? Yeah, sure, the official messaging was that America voted largely on the recession and on defense spending. But let's be honest, Reagan stirs up the right-wing nuts. One of his big campaign ads was the Bear in the Woods ad. There's a bear in the woods. For some people, the bear is easy to see. Others don't see it at all. Some people say the bear is tame. Others say it's vicious and dangerous. Since no one can really be sure who's right, isn't it smart to be as strong as the bear? If there is a bear. I mean, it's word salad in a lot of ways, but it's brilliant because it's so open to interpretation. The bear can be whatever you want it to be. Focus groups who reviewed the ad before it went out thought that the bear represented anything from environmentalism to gun control. But the message is the same for everyone. The bear is a problem, and we need to vote for whoever is going to stop the bear. This is a message that was so popular and so effective that it was resurrected by George W. Bush in 2004 with wolves instead of a bear, and by Ted Cruz in 2015 with a scorpion in the desert. Like, this has become Republican mythology at this point. And the key difference between the writer Hal Reine and the pollster Richard Worthlin, who came up with this ad, and the people that TriStar hired to put out the ads for Silent Night, Deadly Night, is that these guys knew their audience. Richard Worthlin was named Ad Man of the Year by Advertising Age in 1984. Highly doubt that anyone responsible for the Silent Night, Deadly Night campaign was anywhere near that conversation. I mean, personally, me, I see a trailer like that, and I love it, but we're talking about Sunday Night Football in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Your ad is the bear in the woods to these people. Reagan ran on religion and xenophobia and homophobia and racism. He empowered and inspired the agents of moral panic. He got Democrats to vote for him, using economic recovery and national security as their reasons for doing so. The Reagan Democrats, these are people who valued their white middle class existence over the rights and safety of minorities and the poor. But even more pertinent to this conversation about climate and how it relates to the film in question, Reagan received the most Catholic votes in Republican history. And that's important because Catholicism is a subject in Silent Night, Deadly Night. Here's the thing about Silent Night, Deadly Night. In this conversation about the, the protests and the panic, the filmmakers, the producers... They all act like they were shocked by it. They claimed that nobody knew it was going to be controversial. Ira Barmack said that Santa is not a religious figure, he's a mythic character. I didn't deliberately ride roughshod over that sensitivity, and I didn't anticipate the objection to it. Now that's fair, I guess, if you're talking about just a Santa is a killer movie. But that's not what this movie is. Like, okay... Examining the reasons for the protests and the panic, I do largely put that 
on the advertising campaign. You don't run those ads, you don't get those people aware of your film. Which means you don't get a front page story in the Milwaukee Journal about the protests. You don't get protesters being invited onto Good Morning America. I have heard it posited, this theory that the advertising folks knew what they were doing by stirring up controversy here. And there might be some validity to that. I mean, we have seen the idea of staged protests and even real protests stirring up word of mouth and attention for a film in a way that's like, you know, all press is good press. We talked about this with Snuff. Like, we've seen it work that way. But in the case of Snuff, that was in a decade in which this country was less ashamed of its rougher edges. And... Members of the PTA holding signs outside of a movie theater are one thing, but one of America's most trusted film critics coming on his syndicated show and implicitly shaming anyone who goes to see the movie, tacitly accusing you of endorsing or enabling blood profiteering? That's something else altogether. The protest of the film got such attention that Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert in their At The Movies show mentioned the filmmakers by name and said they should be ashamed of themselves. Siskel compared it to I Spit On Your Grave, called it quite sick and contemptible, said your profits truly are blood money, and theorized that the film was deliberately misogynist. And this is Gene Siskel. This, he's not just a critic. He's a celebrity critic. He's a pop culture figure at this time. But then you had Mickey Rooney, child actor, beloved national treasure Mickey Rooney, saying that the filmmakers should be run out of town and saying that they were scum. Uh, Leonard Moulton said that it was a worthless splatter film, gave it zero stars, and then said, what's next, the Easter Bunny as a child molester? Like the hyperbole here is off the charts for this movie if you've seen it. But the thing is, you can't just dismiss this movie as an empty slasher film. Because in so many ways, it's not. This movie is actually a character study as much as Christmas Evil is. In that mad young man, anti-hero, vigilante tradition. You know, this, this movie asks you to sympathize with Billy to a degree. Now... The story is Billy witnesses his parents murdered by a violent criminal dressed as a Santa Claus, and that leaves some trauma. And now an orphan, he and his brother are left to the state, and they're raised in a Catholic orphanage run by a very strict mother superior who will not listen to anything PTSD-related and insists that good and evil, right and wrong, is a moral binary. And it's about making correct choices, and kind of abuses this into Billy, and he loses his mind and slowly develops homicidal tendencies. So on Christmas Eve, when he's 18, working at a toy store, and is drunk for presumably the first time after being made to wear a Santa costume, he snaps and thinks that he must punish people who are misbehaving. He is our traumatized killer. He is our slasher. But he is also our protagonist. 
he's 18 and he's pretty and he's friendly and he's a little socially awkward. He's a final girl. <laughs> like, that's what this movie is doing with this slasher formula. It's removing the, the typical final girl heart of it and replacing it with an abnormal brain, for lack of a more Frankenstein-specific metaphor. It's almost like Billy's troubled, strict, oppressive, and confusing upbringing, the abuse that he has to endure, that's the monster. That's the slasher that is coming to kill the final girl that is Billy's kindness and sensitivity. And because of this, this movie is a lot smarter than it ever gets any credit for. So in a way, it's about the very thing that the people are protesting about. You know, if we want to talk about why Jack Coslow engaged in violent behavior, it's not because of comic books he read. It's because the values that he was raised on had him idolizing police brutality. And if we're talking about the text of the film itself and taking that into account when considering any outrage over it or negative critique that can be leveled at it, you know, the real villain of the story is the mother superior. So it would probably be easy for any self-righteous, self-appointed moral authorities and busybody killjoys to see themselves represented in that character and maybe be upset about it. We're talking about a film that highlights real-world social problems, so some of that outrage might be wrapped up in that. Now, of course, I don't think that anyone that participated in these Citizens Against Movie Madness protests actually would sink low enough to watch this movie, so they probably wouldn't have the opportunity to be offended by the movie telling them that they are the problem. But anyway, the movie made just under a million and a half in its opening weekend. It outgrossed A Nightmare on Elm Street, which opened the same day, but only because it was on more screens. And it was pulled in places after a week and, and died down. In the Milwaukee Sentinel's November 10th review of the film, critic Dwayne Dudick said that there were about 75 people at the screening, including children, and the crowd was loving it. They were cheering and laughing and eating it up. And despite some of the heavier themes, it is a fun movie to watch with a crowd. I've seen it that way multiple times. If you have the opportunity, I highly encourage you to go. A little note about content. There is some assault, some sexual assault, and multiple scenes of police pulling guns on unarmed people. But anyway, all of that controversy around it, it just seems to me like a perfect storm of a number of conditions piling up against a climate where certain people with certain ideas about how life should be lived felt empowered and emboldened to make a fuss about it. And it's all symptomatic of moral panic in general that's against the entertainment industry since long before the Hayes Code, going back even to 1913 and the Ohio Board of Censors. And again, it's this stuff that's kind of all tied up in reactionary politics writ large. You know, it's prudes v. perverts kind of stuff. Now, this controversy and the headache might have been enough to slow down the slasher cycle. I, In my opinion, we will get to it more again, like most things, 
I keep bringing up. But this marks more or less the end of the first wave, as far as I'm concerned, of slashers. And it was the success of, I believe, A Nightmare on Elm Street that sort of built up after Silent Night, Deadly Night went away, that maybe huffed and puffed some new life into this subgenre. Freddy Krueger might be the slasher subgenre's Santa Claus. Claus spelled, you know, with a W because it's a pun. Anyway, a year later, TriStar re-released Silent Night, Deadly Night and tried to use the controversy as, as advertising, you know, to lean into it to see if there was any juice left in that. And this is audio from the trailer they cut for that re-release. Silent Night, Deadly Night, the most talked about film of the decade. The movie that shocked America, outraged Hollywood, and frightened the government. The movie they tried to ban. You've read about it. You've heard about it. Now you can see it in all its terrifying horror. Silent Night, Deadly Night. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Uh, One last note about the panic. You know, everyone is so concerned with how fictional media is going to fuck up kids and turn them into monsters, but nobody seems to be too worried about how poverty, disease, oppression, and war are going to affect their fragile young minds when we get into conversations like this. You know, I think sometimes the moral panic over Silent Night, Deadly Night gets reduced to, like, typical sacred cows and hamburgers stuff. Like, the people upset were framing the whole argument over, you can't do that to Santa Claus, how dare you? It's like defacing Jesus, or the American flag, or dad's favorite football team, or whatever. But that's not how moral panics work. The people behind them often understand that to get their message to resonate, there has to be an active threat to stir people to action. There has to be a bad guy, a monster. And that's where children always come in. In the case of Silent Night, Deadly Night, it wasn't just Christmas is pure, so Christmas can't be evil. And it wasn't just Santa is loved, so Santa can't be evil. It was a threat to the well-being of children, and therefore a threat to the very fabric of society. The Silent Night, Deadly Night panic mirrors the EC Comics panic in that it was about protecting young minds from imagery and ideas that might harm them, or... Worse, and this is probably the real concern, ideas and imagery that might turn them into the sort of person that could harm everyone else. Santa, Billy, and the Crypt Keeper were guilty of contributing to the delinquency of minors in the eyes of people who don't want to face facts about how our civilization goes. They're often the same people that just can't watch horror movies because horror movies are full of really uncomfortable truths about ourselves. There was another Christmas slasher released in 1984 called Don't Open Till Christmas. And it's an in- basically an inversion of the killer Santa idea in Silent Night, Deadly Night. It is not Santa doing the killing. It is someone killing Santas. If you're dressed up as a Santa Claus and don't open till Christmas, you are a potential target. And it's a mess of a movie for a lot of reasons. But it also has a lot of really interesting stuff going on in it. And it has one of my favorite slasher comeuppance moments ever. And if you consider her a final girl, probably one of my favorite final girls of all time. 
But I'm going to leave a little meat on that bone for next year because we're going to I want to come back and discuss other Christmas horror next year. I hope you have a good midwinter holiday season. I hope the coming lengthening of days delivers you well, finds you well. I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here, but I hope you're having a good time. Happy Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Yule. Happy Solstice. Remember, Christmas Eve is the scariest damn night of the year. If you see Santa Claus, you better run. Run for your life. And with that, I'll see you next time with either a found footage episode or another extra dreaded class deceased. You've made it through Halloween. Now try and survive Christmas. Silent night. Deadly night.